Dear Father, uh, Father, speak through the words you've written by your spirit to our heart in a way that makes very clear to every man and woman in this room that you're speaking to them. As you bring to life things from long ago, written for our benefit today, we acknowledge your sovereignty and your power, your authority and your wisdom in the things written to us. The bread of life, the lamp to our feet, a truth that transcends the creation such that when all else is gone, your word will still be here, Father. How important must it be to you that we would learn it if it has such a long-lasting, eternal purpose in your plans for this creation? Father, I thank you that you've given it to us and that you've given us the opportunity to learn it. And now, Father, help us to live it out. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as you uh, read the New Testament Gospels and the epistles, you can't help but admire the men who wrote them, can you? I mean, John, Peter, Matthew, Paul, these were exceptional men by any standard. They endured great trials. They became examples for us and really all believers throughout the age of the church. And as you look at what they wrote, there's wise counsel. They, you see in the book of Acts, there's steady leadership in the early days of the church. And you wonder, how can anyone be like these men were? But I'll tell you, they weren't always so steady and wise. And the Gospels exist, I think in part, so that we would understand these men had to grow into the role that they were given. They had to become the men that we know them to be. And the Lord has been really kind and I think gracious to the church, to you and I, to let us see the progression of these men from sinner to saint to servant. And it's an encouraging thing when you see it, isn't it? You get the chance to understand that these guys, you know, they, they, they start somewhere and they move somewhere and they do it over time and surely if that's their walk, that's also going to be our walk. And the Gospels are, are probably my favorite part in all of that because in the Gospels you really get to see them stumbling <laughs> at times and in a way that I think we all can identify with. And you can chart their growth as you move out of the Gospels into the book of Acts and out of the Acts and into the Apostles. And that progression is encouraging. It means that we have hope. I like to say it this way. We all start as Simon before we become Peter. Amen. We all start as Saul before we're ever a Paul. We're all Abram before we're Abraham. We're all uh, uh, Jacob before we're Israel. You get the point, right? We start somewhere. We go to somewhere. And who does that work inside us? Well, not a hard question, right? I always say, if you don't know the answer to a Bible question, just say, Jesus, you're right 95% of the time. <laughs> that work depends entirely on the Lord inside us, changing us, making us who we are to be. And the journey always starts somewhere. And at the beginning of our journey, and actually for years after that, in most cases, it's still natural to struggle. And that struggle means we, we will revert back to our old nature in moments. And, you know, we see that and we, we wish it wasn't that way. Sometimes it's selfishness, sometimes it's pride, sometimes it's confusion over what Jesus is saying in the Word, and then it's sometimes a disappointing outcome in what we choose to do. But, you know, in time, we do better. And so I think that's probably the most encouraging thing we take away from the things we've been reading of late in the gospel, these stories of these men in their early days, early relatively speaking, early in their career, following Jesus much in the same way that we begin our journey, which is to say, poorly. And we get another reminder of that today 
in a lesson about these guys. Last week, if you remember, in the beginning of this chapter, we were looking at these guys arguing, and, and by guys here, I'm referring to the apostles, the 12, they were arguing over who would be greatest in the kingdom. And that argument deservedly received a rebuke from Jesus. Uh, the reason he rebuked them was they were measuring greatness in terms of worldly achievement, worldly status. And Jesus said, that's not how God works. He rewards humility and servant thinking. The one who would serve his brothers the most would receive the most honor in the kingdom, Jesus said. And then, as you remember, he moved from there to comparing the proper attitude of a believer to that of a child. And as we learned last week, he did that because children are typically, traditionally, models of humility in the household. Young children do not rank first in anything. They're not first in the home. They're generally, generally last in the home. They serve others. They wait for others. They obey others. They have the least power. They make the fewest decisions. They have the least freedom. And they know it. And they, they just accept it. It's who they are in life. And as a result, their attitude reflects their position in the home. And Jesus says that should be the way Every believer approaches their place in the body of Christ, that we adopt this humble attitude and a mindset of serving others before we serve self. And Jesus said, if that is who we become in the body of Christ, we will be well rewarded in the kingdom. All right, so that's the message that he left with the disciples last week. How do you think they responded to that? I'm sure they felt the rebuke, and you'd hope they'd learn from it, but no, that's not exactly what happened. They changed the subject. And that's where we pick up today, verse 4 of Matthew 18. Now, it's not as clear in Matthew's gospel uh, that there's a transition taking place, but I'm going to show you more clearly in a minute what's actually happening. Let's just go to the text, however. Verse 4, kind of picking up where we left off last week, he says, Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now, let's pause there because there's a transition that just happened there. After he told the disciples that humility will mark the greatest among those in the kingdom, he moves now to saying, and here's how you should treat those who adopt that attitude on your behalf. That is, when someone else in the body humbles themselves as like a child, and they serve you in the way that I'm saying you should serve them, how do you receive them? Jesus says, well, receive them as if you're receiving me. For they are acting in my name in that way. They are doing as I commanded. So to make it clearer to you, let me suggest an example moment. What if Jesus could be here again with us physically right now in this church body and he came serving you in some context? I think of the moment in the Gospels where he washes the feet of the disciples, for example, right? Put it in some other context, but he comes and he serves you in a moment. How do you think you would respond to him knowing who he is? Wouldn't you be astonished at his humility? In fact, wouldn't you be a little embarrassed that he's serving you? Wouldn't you be thinking to yourself, I should serve Jesus, much as Peter said, I should wash you, right? And Jesus says, that is exactly how you should respond when someone in the body of Christ adopts a childlike attitude of humility and comes to you and serves you. You should receive that child, so to speak, that believer, as if you're receiving Jesus himself. Receive them in thanks, appreciate their humility, see them as a representative of Jesus to you. Now, that's not how the world looks upon people who serve in that way, by the way. I don't know quite why this is true, but it is true that in general, people like to think that they are magnanimous 
when they're served. And the reality is usually the opposite. Servants of any kind typically are barely acknowledged and often abused by those they serve. They are perceived, generally speaking, as weak, insignificant, and even useless, which is ironic because it's the servant that makes possible the life of the rich and powerful. People look down on servants. Have you ever heard or even thought perhaps yourself that when you look at a servant, a manual laborer, someone working on your behalf, oh, I, you know, if they had more intelligence or more strength, they wouldn't be resorting to that lifestyle. They would be able to work themselves up to something. You ever thought like that? That's how the world looks on servants. You know, that's how they looked on Jesus. When he hung on the cross, this is what they were saying to him. We'll get to this obviously later, but in Matthew 27, 39, and those that were passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, he saved others and he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. You know, little did they understand that the Son of God had put himself on the cross, voluntarily, for their sake, and it was his strength that made it possible for him to be such a humble servant. And that's what Jesus is saying to his disciples in this moment. He's saying, it takes strength to be a servant of someone else self-sacrificially. You know, I've never found anyone who can serve someone else self-sacrificially if they are too absorbed with themselves. If their focus is entirely on affirmation or on someone else showing them or telling them that they're important or that they're needed. Or, you know, if you come at servanthood from an attitude of uh, insecurity, you make a horrible servant because there's always a quid pro quo. You know what I mean? You'll do something nice, but you're kind of waiting for the feedback. You're waiting for the congratulations and the thank you. You need a little bit of that feedback in order to keep going. You won't keep going if you don't get the thanks. We all have a tendency to do that. I think it's natural, but that's not healthy. That's not self-sacrificial service. So when someone comes to you serving you self-sacrificially, we have to receive them with a kind of gratitude and honor that Jesus says is do them. We celebrate them. We remember that this person is doing what Jesus asked. And may I add one other thing? You may be looking at your superior in the kingdom because Jesus said that those who serve with childlike humility are auditioning for a better place in the kingdom. So he tells his disciples, you need to adopt a humble attitude and a servant's heart and you need to honor those who come to you in that style. And he uses the metaphor of a child throughout all of this discussion. That is, you're saved like a child, you serve like a child, and when others come to you as a child in that sense, you honor them. Now, it's hard to see what's happening, as I mentioned here in Matthew's account, because it seems as though Matthew is just sort of moving along a path of teaching that Jesus is taking forward. And you don't hear anything about what the disciples are saying in this part of the, of the passage, uh, but they are talking. It's just not recorded here. And I wonder sometimes if Matthew jumps over some of those moments just to smooth over what was actually happening because he was there. Thankfully, Luke was not there, so Luke has no problem reporting what these guys were actually saying. So we go to Luke 9 for just a moment. I want you to hear, because if you don't understand what they're saying, it disconnects what Jesus says from the larger point. And you end up in, as, as I'm going to show you here, you end up with this passage being horribly mistaught. 
And I, I would suspect for the most part, everyone in here has been subjugated to that poor interpretation as a result. I'm going to show you how to look at it today. But we start in Luke 9. In 9.47, same moment. And I'll back up a little bit so you can see that. Luke 9.47, it says, Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side. And he said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this one is great. All right, same concept. He's teaching that childlike humility is the secret to pleasing Christ and the Father who sent him. And now you hear what the disciples say in response to that. Verse 49, John answered. Surprisingly, it's John this time, not Peter. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. And Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. Now, if you're wondering how that fits, that's my job today. Let me show you. Earlier, the disciples had been arguing which of them within that inner circle, and by that I mean that 12, the apostles, which of them was the greatest? That's where all of this started. And Jesus rebukes them for that concern. And then here you see John moving the conversation to a new comparison, I think because he realizes that they were wrong in that earlier moment and he's trying to smooth it over. Let's move on to something we can all agree on. Well, what is his new comparison? Now he's comparing the work of a disciple of Jesus who is outside the 12 to those of the 12. How is he doing that? Well, remember, apart from the 12 men that Jesus selected to be apostles, there were many others who were following Jesus at this time. All of them collectively are called disciples. But it was from that larger community of disciples that Jesus selected the 12 and made them a higher station, a higher position within those who followed him. And he has done this because it is his intent that they would assume a greater role in the church, as we know. Now, earlier in Luke's gospel, earlier than than the moment we're in now, those 12 had their first taste of the power that would accompany their role as an apostle. If you backed up in the gospel of Luke, what you read is that Jesus sent those 12 out in a kind of trial run, and he gave them power to cast out demons. They went out, they did it, they came back, and they're amazed at the power they now have. They're doing things only Jesus can do. And as you're seeing here, that distinction went to their heads. And it got them talking about who would be the greatest. And then when they're rebuked, now they shift their concern to a regular, ordinary disciple trying to do the things that only apostles should be able to do. Or so they thought. And they feel this guy, whoever it was, was presuming too much authority and privilege. He was doing ministry that was beyond his station playing in their sandbox, you know, taking upon themselves this special role that Jesus had not assigned to him yet. And in what Luke, John says, and, I, and I, it's just amazing when you even hear it, John says to Jesus, we tried to stop him. None of this ministry stuff without approval. <laughs> it's just crazy. And Jesus, in verse 50, tells him, no, John, wrong response again. Anyone who is doing what you would do is on your side. In other words, what he's saying is this. Why did you oppose him? What was your goal in opposing that person's ministry? And the answer that doesn't come in the text because it's not needed is they felt this person was doing things reserved for them. You notice what John says. He says uh, that he does not follow along with us. You know what he's talking about, right? He's talking about the 12. He's saying he's not part of our group. And Jesus 
tells them that's wrong. Look, there are only two teams in ministry, or in the world, rather. There's only two teams. There's Team Jesus, Team Satan. That's it. There's no third team. And there's no division of the teams. Okay, well, I know we have you know, denominations and different churches and all the rest. Okay, I get it. We're all flawed, and we just keep finding ways to divide ourselves like these guys. But it doesn't mean it actually is that way in heaven from God's point of view. There's Team Jesus, Team Satan. And here's the thing. The goals of those two teams are easy to tell apart because they're polar opposites. There's not any overlap between the two. So if you see someone doing the same things you would do on Team Jesus, guess which team they're on? That is, generally speaking, you can accept them as a partner. Moreover, in this, this team, as I call it, the body of Christ, we all get assigned a role. We all get certain gifts, certain opportunities, and all of that comes from the same person. Guess who that is? Here's a clue. It's not you. Not me. It's not anyone in the body of Christ. It's Jesus. He makes the assignment. And Jesus is assigning people to do things without the approval of the apostles. And what a shock it must have been for them to find that out. Do you know what he does later in Luke's gospel? Just one chapter later, Jesus sends out 70 disciples with the same power to cast out demons. I think he did that, that additional sending out of 70. I think he did that to teach these guys a lesson. You're not the only ones on the planet who can serve me. And if Jesus is the one who is making all of these decisions, assigning all of the roles, giving the gifts, and I should add, determining the success, if that's Jesus and Jesus alone to do all of that, then none of us can claim a privileged position on the team. None of us get to sit back and say, I'm all that. You know, thank God Jesus has got me. How would this happen without me? You know, we don't ever say it, but boy, we sure act like it sometimes. I do. I mean, we, I think we can all get into that mindset. We cannot reserve ministry for just some people. I find this happening all the time, and I love to, to sort of burst this bubble for people because it's healthy. Uh, we'll talk about baptism, for example, and I'll ask the person, who do you want to have baptize you? And they look at me like, well, I mean, it's got to be you, right? Like, oh, it can be anybody. It can be your wife, your husband, your friend, somebody else. I don't care. Who do you want to have baptize you? And they look at me like I'm breaking the rules, like... It won't be valid. I can't have this, you know, and I think I try to explain to them. It's, I'm not some special person that can only do the ministry and no one else can. Who do you want to have marry you? Who do you want to have do your funeral? Who do you want to have pray with you? Who do you want to have teach you? I mean, th- there's no rules here except that the person be called by God to do it. And we're not the ones validating that. We're just receiving them. Uh, my point is obvious, right? There's an old saying, there's no limit to the good we can do if we don't care who gets the credit. Right? But here's the thing, when you do care who gets the credit, it stops ministry. It absolutely puts an end to ministry. If our concern is who does it rather than what is done, we begin to see ministry success from other corners of the church as a threat to our own success. We see someone else's success at the expense of ours, and the thing is, it's not a zero-sum game. It's not as though one area of ministry success makes another area go away. It's always additive. It's always just more. And when you go on making comparisons about what you do versus what someone else does in the body of Christ, you inevitably stoke feelings of jealousy and pride and and ego, and those emotions never make ministry better. They always get in the way of ministry. And that's what leads Jesus into the next section. So here's the thread that we need to follow in this passage. 
From the beginning of these men getting power, they begin to think of themselves as something special and they start talking amongst themselves over who's the best. Not a healthy emotion in ministry. Jesus rebukes them and says, you got it backwards, guys. Think about who the biggest servant is. That's what you ought to focus on. To which John says, okay, well, that may be true for us, but did you know there's other people out there trying to do what we alone can do? And Jesus is like, oy vey. Um, he, he says, no, you need to receive them like you receive a child, right? That is, if they're the ones doing this humble ministry, you ought to honor them for it. And then... As a result of their rebuke of that man, when they told him, you shouldn't be doing this, they tried to stop him, Jesus now takes a new tact on the conversation, and he brings up the issue of a stumbling block. Verse 6, he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. Throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. Throw it away from you. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be cast into the fiery hell. All right, now, before we look at this section, I need to give you, this is where I said earlier that what you've probably heard about this passage is taking you in in an unhelpful direction. I say that because, and maybe I should take a poll, when you've read this section before, how many of you have been taught this is about Jesus' love for children, that he cares for the children, right? He wants children to come to him, don't hinder the children, 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 right? All right, fair enough. I don't pretend that, I'm not saying, you know, Jesus doesn't love children. I mean, you know, who doesn't love children? I kind of like them. They're okay. Um, mostly. Uh, I mean, we're not, I'm, not, I'm not negating that truth, all right? But what I'm saying is this. This passage is not about children. The child is the metaphor. It's been a metaphor in the beginning. It's a metaphor throughout. It's never anything but a metaphor. What is the child a picture of? What has it been a picture of from the beginning? A believer. Not a chrono- chronologically young believer. A believer. And let me be honest with you, Jesus does not have greater love for you when your age is a certain number. That is a nonsensical statement. Your physical body's age is immaterial to the question of Jesus' love for you or your eternal destiny or anything else. The size size and maturity of your physical container is not Jesus' principal concern. And he doesn't have different rules for people of certain ages, okay? That is not a biblical notion, never has been. And I know we have a place in our heart for children. Fair enough, that's great. I don't want to change that. I'm just saying that's not the basis for your theology. What Jesus is talking about here is how believers work within the body, how their attitude should be, how we respond to those who have a humble attitude or not. And the whole passage, in fact, the whole chapter is on that. And so as we look at this, you need to understand that what Jesus is talking about here is not somebody else's problem. It's your problem. And my problem, what I mean by that is this, if you were to think he's only talking about what's true for little kids, do you know what you can do with the passage at that point? You can forget it, right? Because you say to yourself, I'm not that problem, I love kids, I'm fine with kids, I'm just glad that Jesus is talking about all those nasty people that hate kids. It's ridiculous. You know, I'm glad, I don't stumble children, I love little children, I'm glad he's got it, he's going to go get those people who stumble children though. 
No, see, we dismiss the whole meaning of the passage, we make it about someone else, and we take ourselves out of it. Guess what? It's not about children. It's about believers. Have you ever stumbled an adult? All right, well, now this passage is about you and all of us. That's why this is important. So just to prove my point, because I don't want anybody to think I'm just you know, making this up, look down the passage with me very briefly and look at how he's made the metaphor, how he's developed the metaphor, okay? Verse three, Jesus says, the way we enter faith is like becoming a child, entering the world humbly. Verse four, he moves to the next step, comparing the way we serve Jesus in faith to the way a child serves humbly. Verse five, therefore we must receive those who serve us humbly like children, as if Jesus himself were serving us. And now he moves to his view of a person who should cause one of those little ones, one of his children, one of his believers, to stumble. It's just a natural progression of the metaphor. And therefore, what we're talking about here is believers, not children specifically. They stand for us. All right, so causing a believer to stumble is his next concern. And to cause someone to stumble simply means to move them away from obedience and service to Jesus and toward sin and worldliness and self-centeredness and the like, the opposite, right? And I said, all of us have probably been guilty of doing this to somebody else at one point or another. I think half the time we don't even know we're doing it, right? We don't know that what we're saying or doing is leading someone else down the wrong path. It's just our nature comes out of us and there we are. And in verse 7, Jesus acknowledges that. Do you notice that? He says, look, it's, it's inevitable stumbling blocks come. Sometimes from the world, that is, the world itself is always a stumbling block to the believer. And even within the body, it can happen. And it's just kind of the natural way of, wor- of, of the sinful world. And being someone else's stumbling block is never what we want, of course, but that's not Jesus' first concern here. That is, this is not a passage about the accidental bad influences that we can bring to somebody else. He's concerned with something far more sinister, far more deliberate, and in fact, he's concerned about the kind of behavior that the apostles just demonstrated with concern to that other guy that they mentioned. That is, an organized effort, whether done out of spite or jealousy or resentment or whatever, to inhibit the walk, to inhibit the service of another believer. Woe if you do that. Jesus says, woe to that person, which is a way of saying they will be judged. And in fact, he, he says it would be better for that person to be drowned in the sea than to continue stumbling believers. Now, that statement is classic biblical hyperbola. And Jesus does this from time to time, speaking in exaggerated terms so as to emphasize just how seriously he views this problem. He is not literally advocating for suicide or homicide. That's not his intent, obviously. Uh, A believer, by the way, is never condemned for his or her sin, but we are judged for our service or lack thereof. And Jesus says, if your service, so to speak, includes working against others in their efforts to serve Jesus so as to stumble them, he says, in a sense, you're not going to like the the reward you're going to receive. And it would be better if you cut your life short, so to speak, than to keep going on piling up demerits with God. Not on the issue of your salvation, but on this issue of how you'll be judged for reward, he's saying. And he's using hyperbola, and his hyperbola just grows more excessive. If you notice, next thing he says is, uh, if you should find that you have become a stumbling block to somebody else, take serious corrective action to address it. And even if it should require we cut off limbs in order to 
prevent being a stumbling block, that is preferable, Jesus says. Now, he is clearly not advocating self-mutilation either. You have to read this with you know, a sense of, of appreciation for what he's trying to do as he talks to these dense guys that are following him and not getting the point, right? He's speaking in shock value terms. That's his intent. And in this whole discourse, he has relied extensively on metaphor and on figures of speech. That's been the style the whole way through. So don't divorce that from the text. Don't read it in this wooden way in which you just take it without any insight. Because then you're going to start finding people cutting off limbs and thinking that it's biblical. It's not biblical. And he he just uses these to, to emphasize that there is no earthly sacrifice too great to prevent eternal loss. Now, in his exaggerated example, the eternal loss is going to hell. So here's what he's saying effectively. If it were possible for someone to avoid going to hell by cutting off a limb, by the way, that's not possible, right? Further proof to us that this is an exaggeration. You don't stay out of hell by maiming yourself, okay? Just in case anybody is confused on that point. So that's clearly not literal. That's clearly an exaggeration. But his point is, If you could do that, let's just say for argument's sake, if someone could get out of hell by cutting off a foot, it'd be worth it, right? I mean, honestly, wouldn't it? He says, one missing foot is worth not going to hell for eternity, isn't it, right? So his point is that if you could change anything in your life to ensure a better eternal judgment, it's worth it. It's worth it. And if you are aware that stumbling another believer, and by stumbling, I do not mean, I think the classic view of this is sometimes too narrow. Stumbling a believer is not limited to the fact that you have a bad habit, and when you exercise that bad habit around someone else, it leads them to want to do the same bad. Okay, that's a kind of stumbling. That's not the chief concern here. The chief concern here is more like what the apostles are doing. By privilege and ego and pride and jealousy, you actually stop other people doing what Christ wants them to do. You get in the way of their ministry. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've walked into churches and taught, and I use the wrong marker, and I'm told that's not your marker. Or, you can't have this room, we reserved it for us first. This kind of contention over resources or privilege or opportunity that makes it sound as if we're working against each other and we're all trying to do the same thing. Now, I'm not saying there shouldn't be some order and, you know, reserving rooms and all. I get it. But, you know, the old adage about being a big fish in a small pond? Well, I have a corollary to that. The smaller the pond, the nastier the fish tends to be. And it's just the nature of humanity. We just have this pride about us. And if you get into a small church or any kind of ministry and you find yourself kind of running the show for a while, well, God help the person who tries to get in your way. That's what we see sometimes. And that is stumbling people. You you may not have connected that behavior with that word, but what you've done is you've put a barrier between that person's ability to serve Jesus and their opportunity to obey. You've made it harder. You've said they're not worthy. They're not you. They don't have approval. They don't have three stamped triplicate forms and so on. That's not the attitude we want in ministry. It's the opposite of ministry. Now, think about what's going on in the apostles' mind about now. I like to try to put myself in their position. They just heard Jesus say that trying to stop a man from healing someone who had a demon inside them was not just wrong, but they had better throw themselves off a cliff into the water than do that again. They'd be better to cut off limbs than to do that again. And their eternal reward is on the line, more or less. I suspect these guys are shocked at the prospect that what they thought they were doing, which was right, was 180 degrees from what Jesus wanted. Do you know what the word ministry is in Greek? 
The, the word in Greek is daikoneo, and it just means to serve. It's literally the word in Greek for serve. Daikonos, where we get the word deacon from, is from that same word, to serve. So in effect, all of us are deacons. That is, we are all servants of Christ if we do our job. So when someone serves another person, by definition, they are ministering to that person in the way the words work. And as they minister to that person, here's how the loop works, they're enabling that person by virtue of what they're giving to him or her in ministry. They're enabling that person to serve someone else better. So ministry begets ministry. Service leads to more service if it's done in the right heart. But, and by the way, that is the culture the church is supposed to have, right? I mean, I'll use myself in his example. As I minister to you and what God's called me to do, if I'm doing it well, it should encourage you to walk closer with Jesus, to think more carefully about your duties to him. It should result in you being trained up. And so as I teach or I pray for you or I direct you, correct you if necessary, those things should be leading you to do more and better things for Jesus in your own walk, right? That's the idea. And when you do your better things, someone else is being blessed by that. That's service. That's ministry. That's the culture. But if you think about this now, if you don't do those things in humility and with the other person's best interests at heart, not your own, ministry stops. Now, ironically, on an outward level, it doesn't stop. We still keep doing things. But on a spiritual level, it stops. Because I'm not serving you anymore, I'm serving myself. As soon as it's about me and what I'm getting out of the moment, how it's affecting me, my pride, my my desire for something, whatever it might be, well, then I don't even care if you're in the room. As long as you don't get in the way. That becomes a self-serving activity. It's not ministry anymore, because I'm not serving you anymore. Not in my heart. I may do things that look very spiritual. I might do them to get noticed. I might do them because I get a paycheck or whatever, but it doesn't equate to ministry. I no longer see humility as my goal because, in fact, humility works against me if my goal is myself. Instead, I see it as a means to a greater end for myself in my own pride and in my position. And when what I want comes into conflict with what someone else wants to do in ministry, now I gotta stop you. Now I gotta prevent you. Now there's a conflict. Now we're on opposite sides. No longer Team Jesus, Team Steve. That becomes an impediment to ministry. That's what these guys were doing. And Jesus says, that is being a stumbling block to other people. You set bad examples, but worse than that, you stop them from doing what God has called them to do. Let me just be clear as a pastor in this church. What I want is more ministry. I don't care who does it. I don't care how you do it. Well, that's not true. I care a little about how you do it. But in the long run, I don't care if you do it poorly the first time and better the second time. Just do something. Ministry is okay. It's not a perfectionist game. It's not about, you know, the old adage, perfect can be the enemy of good. You know, just, just get moving. Serve Christ. Do as he's called you to do. And if the body as a whole gets in the way, if they make it harder, if they tell you that you're not desired, your work's not desirable, uh, your service isn't necessary, tell me about that, please. Please tell me that. If it's me doing it, tell another elder. Seriously. I mean, we, we, we can do it without knowing it, but we don't want to do it. We want everyone to feel like this is a place where they come and they serve. Period. End of sentence. And if the service can be made better, we'll tell you. But that's about moving you forward, not moving you backward. And I feel like the heart of the church needs to always remember that. Now, as we finish today, in the last section for the day, look in verse 10. Jesus says, here's what he feels when he sees people being a stumbling block. 
He says, verse 10, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which had not gone astray. And so it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Now here again, remember, we're not talking about children. We're talking about believers. This is the same metaphor. And he says, if we ever become inclined to think too little of our fellow believers, remember this, that they have angels assigned to them before the Father in heaven at all times. Let me explain what he's saying here. First, you need to understand what the word despised means. Despised means to think very little of someone. And as a result, to despise someone is the opposite of receiving them in joy. So as someone comes to serve you in a position of humility and you despise them, you're doing what the world does to servants. You're taking advantage of them, dismissing them, and giving them no regard. And he says, when we despise one of these little ones, we're working against what Christ has asked of us. And he says, do not do that. Do not despise little ones. Here again, little ones is the metaphor of a child, a child being a picture of a believer, acting in humility. And he says, if it helps, think about this. In Hebrews 1.14, God says that angels were created expressly to be ministering Spirits. Now remember, the word minister means servants. So they are spirits who serve. And that verse goes on to say, they render that service for the sake of those who will receive salvation. Believers, in other words. So here's what we just learned, what Hebrews 1.14 says. The angelic realm was produced, created by God, expressly for the purpose of serving the elect, those who would believe. And as such... That means angels are assigned to us, specifically, as Jesus says here. You have angels in heaven assigned to you. And obviously, we don't understand all that that implies. We don't understand all the service that they give, what it, what it looks like. I, I, I can't say what that means to you in, in specific ways. Is that angel helping you avoid car accidents and you know, watching out for you in dark alleys? Or, or I, I don't know. Obviously, they're not your intercessor. That's Jesus. But... There is some other role that God assigns to these angels. And that's remarkable. I I suspect they do a lot more than you could possibly imagine. Can't wait to find out what the whole story is when we get there. But here's the point. If your creator thought enough of every single believer to create and then assign angels to each one of us, then how ought we look upon one another in light of that? Is there any reason to despise one another when there are angels before the Father serving that individual? I mean, what does that say about their worth to God? How do you think God feels then when he has died to save that person, he has given them angels to guard over their walk and service to him, and then we come along and we lead that person to stumble or get in the way of their service to Jesus? How do you think he feels about that? I mean, you get it, right? despising them, judging them unworthy to serve Jesus, taking advantage of them, whatever that might look like, being jealous over their success in ministry, etc. It says a lot about us, doesn't it, when we act that way. Notice in verse 11, Jesus says, the Son of Man has come to save and seek, 
Seek and save those who are lost in that way. Now, in your English Bible, does it have brackets around that? If you do, here's what that means. That's your translator's way of telling you that the earliest manuscripts we have from Matthew's Gospel don't have that verse, meaning it got added at some later point, which is a strong indication that it was not originally there. Some copyist decided to add it. And it comes out of Luke's Gospel. Luke's where you actually find that statement. So I think what happened was a copyist looked at what Jesus was saying. They, made, they understood the point, and they thought, you know, that's a pretty good summary of what he's making the point here. Let's just put that summary in there. And even though it was a poor choice on their part as far as the accuracy of the text goes, it's actually, I think, a correct assessment. That is a good summary. Jesus is saying, I came to save these people, and you're in no position to get in their way. I don't need your help in that respect. And then to make his point, he uses a parable. The parable that I know you've heard before, right? And uh, you can understand his heart for believers when you look at the comparison of how a shepherd views sheep. And he says in verse 12 that as a shepherd guards a flock of, say, 100 sheep, he cannot let his responsibility for the flock as a whole overshadow his concern for the individuals within the flock. And it goes to the point that if even just one sheep has gone astray, that man would leave 99 to go find the one. And that's a risky thing to do. You know, you've left 99, 99% of your flock is now without guarding, without shepherding, to go take care of one that's gone astray. And before we make the application here, we ought to ask the question, why would a shepherd do that? Why is that even a thing? Why wouldn't the shepherd just sit there and say, oh, well, one, but at least I got 99 I can't afford to lose any more. Do you know why shepherds go after one? Because sheep are always going astray. In fact, I don't think there's a day in the life of a shepherd where they don't have a problem of a sheep that's not with the flock and they have to go find them. So here's the point. If a shepherd was not willing to go after the one lone sheep, it wouldn't be long before there'd be no flock, right? There'd be one, then one, then one, then one, then one, and the next thing you know, there's none. That's the nature of shepherding. Sheep are always going somewhere they shouldn't go, and you're always chasing after them, and it's part of the job. And that is the point here. Keeping the flock together is the job. And Jesus says the Father's heart rejoices over the restoration of the one more than the obedience of the 99. That's the analogy. And that should be our heart too. Not only are we not to stumble a brother or sister by our own pride or whatever reasons we have. It goes deeper than that. Jesus wants us to restore the one who is stumbled. Jesus wants us to find the stray sheep and bring them back. He is more happy about that, so to speak, than he is about the steady state of obedience in the body because he wants 100% of his flock to be obedient, not just 99. So, as you leave today, I want to suggest, we're kind of midway through this. In fact, if you look further down in the text for next week, I want you to notice we go into a passage that many of you may be very familiar with. It's typically a passage we think of in terms of discipline, where Jesus talks about how the church is to handle the wayward sheep, how we restore them into the body, how we correct them, right? And if you've looked at that passage in the past, it's typically seen as a nuclear weapon, you know, it's like break glass in case of emergency. Pull out Matthew 18. We got, a, we got a bad Christian in our midst. Okay, what do we do? I've never done this before. What do we do? Have you ever felt that way about Matthew 18? If you don't know what I'm talking about, you'll see next week. But now that you see it in its proper context, you should realize we're not talking about a break the glass emergency sort of thing. We're talking about a daily thing. 
The, the, the daily recovery and restoration of wayward sheep. The way in which the church is supposed to not only not be a stumbling block, but correct those who are stumbling in the process of their walk so that there's always a hundred of us doing what Christ has asked us to do, so to speak. That's where we're going. But today we stop here for the lack of time, so we're in the middle of it. And I thought, as I get out of this, I thought I want to make sure I don't leave you halfway through with nothing to do to, to uh, consider this week. So let me throw at you uh, three takeaways from just the first part of this lesson today. First, you're not competing with other Christians, so don't make comparisons. Not everyone has the same gift, not everyone has the same calling, not everyone uses the same methods, not everyone will gain the same results according to the Lord's desire. Don't worry about it. It's not a contest. Leave judgment to the master. Your own reward is not dependent on whether you exceed someone else's service. You're only competing with yourself. That is against your flesh. So discipline the flesh and do what you're called to do. Don't worry about anybody else. Secondly, when we serve, we serve in humility, not with a quid pro quo. If no one ever thanks you, don't worry. Jesus knows what you're doing. We should thank you. I'm not saying that's good. I'm just saying don't let your motivation, your goal in service be something here and now, whether that's kudos, whether it's recognition or something else you desire. If it comes, it comes. It's not the goal. And when you receive service from someone and you see their humility, you see their heart to serve, do receive that in joy. Value it. Lift them up. I mean, not just in the sense of prayer or thanks, but honor them. Honor them as someone who is doing what Christ has asked all of us to do, remembering that serving humbly is a path to eternal honor. And then thirdly and finally, let's try to become more aware of how our words and actions may be stumbling blocks for other people, not just in the sense that we influence them in bad ways through our bad habits or the like, but more in the sense that our style of ministry, our style of working with other people actually makes them our enemy in a sense, our our competition, uh, as if we need them to fail for us to win. And though we would never say that, I'm sure we would never think that that's our style, it may be there more than we realize. Give some thought to that. And if you discover that there is some style or pattern or habit in your life that is a a negative influence, it's curtailing other people's walk in their their ministry of Christ, to to Christ and to the body, then do anything necessary to change it because there are eternal consequences. Well, that's certainly enough to think about for one week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, guard our hearts against pride, Father. Guard our hearts against self-importance. Don't let us see each other as competition, Father. Let us see each other as you do sheep in a flock under a common master, a good shepherd. Let us encourage one another, Father, in our service to him and to each other. Let us receive that service in joy. Help us to understand, Father, how we can serve if we're not already doing so, Father. Let us be someone who understands ministry is service. And Father, I thank you for a community that would hold to these values We are young and we are growing, but Father, I pray you would always keep our hearts in this place as a church body. I don't ever want to turn up one day, wake up one morning and find that we've suddenly become a church that thinks only of ourselves. 
as easy as it can be to live that way, Father, please help us avoid it. Help us be ambassadors for Jesus. And I thank you that we can serve him at all. Protect our hearts. Bring us back next week. Help us to follow this study to its conclusion. And I pray this in Jesus' name.